Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll work through that, so. All right, so uh, this week we are looking at the topic of sin. So that's the next topic. Again, if you remember from, I don't know, I guess it's probably been six or seven weeks ago, I gave you a list of the proposed order of what we were going to try to do with the statement of faith to sort of make the flow a little bit more, maybe a little bit more logical, easy to follow. So the top one on your page, if you're on the side that says the fall of man, uh, the top one is the one that we currently have. And I thought that I would show you a few from a couple of other churches just to show how they've worded it. And then on the back, there's kind of more of an expansion of something I wrote for seminary to see if there's any of those topics that we would want to pick up. So, what we'll do, as we have typically done, is we'll start out and we'll read through the phrases of the existing Statement of Faith section, and then we can uh, talk through those. So, the first one there is that man was created in holiness and innocence. And so, uh, any thoughts on that first phrase? What it's getting at? Is that helpful? Uh, some of those kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. And, sorry, I'm going to come out here and grab a pen. All right. Um, yes. Uh, no, the bottom three are just samples from other churches just to sort of see an idea of what they wrote. So if you'll notice, some of them are very, very short. Um, okay. Yeah. So, if we said man was created without sin in the image of God, something like that? Okay. Uh, the, I think that's helpful because holiness and innocence gets into the whole question of... It's sort of the question we ask ourselves. If Adam and Eve were good, why did they ever sin? So holiness and innocence sort of gets into this whole big argument about innocence would basically be they were in a state of holiness, but they had not experienced holiness, like they hadn't done right and wrong up to that point, and, uh, and some of those sorts of things. And so, again, I don't think it's bad to word it that way, but I think, as Paul pointed out, it could be confusing. Um, in the image of God, we talked about that some uh, several weeks ago when we were talking about creation. But I think it doesn't hurt to rem remember it here uh, because it's significant that the image of God is still present in every human being. No matter how bad we are, no matter what sort of things may be going on in our lives, all of us possess the image of God, which means things like dignity and worth and value and all of those sorts of things that are associated with being, uh, with being part of humanity. And so... Um, I think that image of God idea is probably a good one to keep in there. Anybody have any other ideas about that? Or? Well, 
Okay. Sure, sure. And I guess in my mind, I would there's there's two different ideas of freedom when it comes to our ability to choose. There's the idea that I can choose whatever I want to do, which is sort of the popular idea in our culture. You can you can be whatever you want to be, but the reality is the circumstances and who we are constrains us from uh, an unlimited set of choices. And in the same way, um, uh, after sin, the fact that we're sinners sort of limits our choices. But yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which Adam and Eve, uh, before God, had the opportunity to, to, uh, to choose right or wrong. I mean, he said, if you eat of it, this is what will happen. They decided to eat of it, and that's what happened. Um, under the law of his maker, I think, is getting to what God said to them in Genesis 2, which was that if you eat from the tree, you will die. And so uh, I think that's where that phrase is being pulled from. Um, when it says, by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and blessed state. Yeah, but, but, but just the phrasing of that, is that clear? Is there a better way to say it? Okay. All right. Okay. If we tie it into that in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners, obviously the in consequence of which could be improved upon, I think, because we don't really talk like that as a general rule. Um, I think that tying in um, Romans 5 is the passage down here, but I think that that's significant to tie that in because uh, there's the question of what is our relationship to Adam. Because there's some people that say, you're a sinner because you sin. There is no concept of you're a sinner because Adam sinned and you're connected with Adam and humanity is in sin Born into sin, right. Yeah, for sure. Um, right. Right, right. And I like even the third one there, where the one that's titled Man and Sin. As um, We believe the human race fell when Adam sinned. As a result, man is dead and trespasses and sins. I mean, that's a very straightforward way to, to develop it as well. So, um, the man is not a sinner by constraint, but by choice would basically be the fact that it's not just... Adam sinned, we're considered sinners, we really don't want to sin, but we're just sort of stuck because Adam sinned. We all want to sin, right? Um, 
from a very young age, we uh, start to say, here's what I want to do in opposition to what parents or whoever else is telling me to do. Um, and so that is important to develop. And that there's a couple of different ways to say it. Uh, become sinners in thought, word, and deed. Man is a sinner both by nature and by choice. Um, the last one, I think, maybe doesn't develop that quite as much. And so I do think that we need that idea of I want to, um, I sin because I'm human, and I also sin because I want to. I think we need both those ideas in there. So, right. Yeah. Um, let's see here. There was something else that I wanted to develop at this point. Let me glance here. Flip over to the back. I don't think that we necessarily need to put this in the statement of faith, but I just want to make sure that we're clear on it in our own minds. So, um, a guy named Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, sin is failure to conform to the moral law of God and act, attitude, or nature. So, acts of sin would be things like murder, adultery, stealing. Attitudes of sin would be thoughts, desires, motivations like hatred and lust. Nature is the very being of who we are. And so sometimes we think of sin, we say, well, sin is selfishness, which is true, but not all selfishness is sin in the sense that what God does, he does for himself, and he's not sinning to do it. The difference is God is able to do that, and we're not able to do that, and so when we do it, it's sinful. When God does it, uh, seeking what is pleasing to him, if he's the highest being over all things, he can't defer to somebody else and say, well, I'd rather do what you want to do because he's God. And so that's where it's a little bit different. And so, again, sin is very closely connected with selfishness for us, but it's not only selfishness or not all selfishness is sin, uh, at least in the sense of what God does for himself. Um, so, again, I don't know that we necessarily need to go to the detail of defining what are acts, attitudes, or nature in the statement of faith. I just want to make sure that we're clear on that in our own minds. Uh, another thing that I think that the statement of faith develops that we should probably talk about is this idea that man is by nature utterly void of the holiness required by the law of God. So when it says utterly void of the holiness required by the law of God, I mean, what is that? What what passages come to mind, what, what biblical ideas would support that sort of a statement? Yes, Amy? Okay, good. And what were you saying, Jonathan? Yeah, 3.10 through 18. 9 through 18, yeah. Um, so we only have three... 19 listed on the page, but I think, right, oh, there it is, there it is, yeah, what's that, there's none that does good, no, not one, yes, mm-hmm, 
So this, this for me was one of the things that argues against the idea that I can just sort of um, flip the switch and stop being a sinner just without any work of God because it's fairly, it's fairly uh, exhaustive in what it says. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless, there is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps or serpents is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their paths, the path of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so every mouth may be closed and the world may become accountable to God. So that's a fairly grim and discouraging picture that it paints of humanity, right? Because we, we want to hold out this idea that there's a little spark of goodness in everybody and if we could just sort of fan the flame of that, everything would go better. And so then that leads to ideas like, well, uh, the solution to problems in society is merely and only education. If people had more information, they wouldn't act a certain way. But the reality is the problem is not education because Romans 1 says creation testifies to God, conscience tells us right and wrong, and we try to ignore both those things as a general rule, and we go our own way. And so um, I think that this is an important idea to, to have clear in our minds that we are sinners that we are sinners pervasively and but but here's at the same time if we emphasize that too much we start to lose this idea of the image of God in this sense if we say people are sinners and we act wickedly and despicably and so forth then we start to de-emphasize the image of God and say well then we can just sort of look down on people or we can uh, have all this pride if I don't do a particular sin and that person does and whatever because we think that um, we think that, that somehow makes someone less. But the reality is they are not less. They're still made in God's image, but that image is twisted, marred, deformed in some way because of the effects of sin in our lives. And so that's uh, something else that I think that we need to, to consider. When it says positively inclined to evil... I understand, I think, what that's saying in the statement of faith. Does that, is that clear to everyone as you're looking at it when it says positively inclined to evil? Okay. Because we think positive and we think good, right? It just... Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, when it says... Sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things like mathematically you're going in this direction or you're going in that direction. That's the way that they're using positively, but the way that we use the word tends not to be that way. So, True, we could say that. We could try that. <laughs> so what's the result of that? We're under just condemnation to eternal ruin. Um Again, eternal ruin is true, but it could be confusing. Um, 
I think that if we combine some of the ideas from these last few plus what we already have, we would sort of get the whole picture, which is that, um, I, I mean, I like the last one where it points out Romans 5.12 and uh, Romans 6.20, which I don't think is one of the, 5.12 is there, but I think Romans 6.20 is one that would be uh, a good verse to add. And Romans 6.20 says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And so there's this this picture that the Bible paints that, um, going back to the idea of free will, sometimes we think freedom means I can do whatever I want or that I don't have to answer to anybody. But the picture the Bible p- paints is, it's not a question of absolute freedom, it's a question of masters. Do you serve God? Do you serve yourself in sin? Serving this master leads to eternal life, Serving this master leads to destruction and despair. And so, again, I think that that's a helpful idea to bring in there. So, yes, Paul. Okay. All right. Right. So here's a question that we could consider, and I went back and forth about including it here or not, and that is, do we include the concept of the righteous and the wicked that's in the statement of faith and combine it with this topic, or do we combine it with some ideas about the last days? Because they, they could go... What's that? Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, let me see if I think I can pull up the statement of faith and I can read for you what it says about the righteous and the wicked and then we can... Uh, See if we want to incorporate some of that in here as well. Uh, Here we go. So, with regards to... All right. It says here, We believe that there is a radical difference between the eternal destiny of the righteous and the wicked. We believe that the moment a person accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior... And in true repentance calls upon his name, that person is eternally saved, while the person who continues in sin and finally rejects the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior is eternally lost. So, the question would be, do we put all of that in with this topic? Do we put just the first phrase in with this topic, and then put the other in with the next topic, which is salvation? Um, so that's a question of, of organization or structure that's something that we could think through. But I think we could certainly put there's a radical difference in the destiny of the righteous and the wicked, right? Because that would get at what you're saying, right, Paul? Okay. 
So from okay. All right. Um, something else that I think I want us to look at, just because it's something that you've probably thought about or has probably come up. We don't have it in our statement of faith, nor am I saying that we should. But look at the first example that I have there, not the one at the top, but the next one that says the fall of man. It says, in the case of those who reach moral responsibility. So, how many of you have heard the idea of the age of innocence or moral responsibility, something like that? What are your thoughts about that? Right, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think that that's true? Do you think there's biblical support for it? Okay. Say that one more time. Okay. All right. So we've got the idea of babies. All right. Uh, we also have the idea of, and it could be argued that someone who's in this category had an opportunity before they fell into this category, but potentially here we're also talking about someone who has dementia. Um, and what are, we could probably also in this include someone who has uh, some sort of uh, mental deficiencies, they're having a difficulty understanding things or inability to speak or, or some sort of severe physical disability that would um, factor into this. So, the reason that I raise this is because I think it will tie into the topic of salvation that we're going to look at next week. And I think it's something that it's just helpful for us to consider because essentially you have um, I think there's probably about at least three main groups of ideas and then probably some varieties on it. One is all people in these categories, babies, those who have mental disabilities, automatically go to heaven. Another would be none of them do because they're not responding in repentance and faith in any way. And a third would be that some of them do. Now, uh, what would be some biblical support or ideas that we would say that we might think that all people in these categories would go to heaven? Jonathan? Okay. Okay. All right. Any other... Uh, Passages along these lines? Okay. Okay. There's also the example of David in the Old Testament that people sometimes argue from. Um, he says, I will not, my child will not come back to me, but I will go to him. That is, I think, probably the verse that, that the people have in mind. Um, so, here's the tension. 
we don't like the idea of a God who would condemn a child to eternal suffering. But for that matter, we don't like the idea of a God who would condemn anyone that we love to eternal suffering. I mean, to be honest, that's probably the starting point of it. How, how are people... Uh, well, just to back it up, um, people are condemned through creation and conscience. We know there's a God, we ignore it, we know there's right and wrong, and we do wrong anyway. That's not sufficient to save us. There's been people in the past 50 years who've said, well, if someone is a really sincere Muslim or a really sincere Buddhist or all those sorts of things, if they, if they follow God with the light they have, they're going to heaven. That's a sort of universalism that doesn't fit with the testimony of Scripture. Um, which then creates a degree of guilt for us, right? If people are going to be condemned, if they don't know about Jesus... What's the gap then? Who's going to tell them? Right? And so that discussion is connected with this discussion in that if we are emphatic that there is one way to God for people generally who have a geographic obstacle to knowing Christ, as in no one's gone there and told them, then how does that factor into this question of people who have a, we'll just say, an intellectual obstacle to understanding and knowing Christ. In my mind, this is where I would land on this, just to sort of help us walk through this. If faith was something that was solely up to us, I think that you would have to argue that babies can't have faith and that God has some sort of a loophole to let them into heaven because it wouldn't be consistent with you have to choose and then follow God. If faith is, as Ephesians 2.8.9, if salvation overall, faith being a part of that, is a gift of God, then I would argue that God can grant that gift of regeneration to a child, to someone who's not able to verbally express agreement to these sorts of ideas, that God can grant the benefits of salvation to that person on the basis of the fact that he grants it to any one of us. And the basis of it would be the work of Christ. The way that they get it is God gives them new life. They possess, as Paul was pointing out, that or I think it was Paul, faith like a little child. One of you said that. Um, Jonathan. Um, now, the question is, does God do that for every person in this category? Eric? Yes. Sure. Agreed. Yes, definitely. 
here's, here's the way that I would look at it. I would say, I'm not sure that I could say to everyone who's had someone in that category, your child is automatically in heaven. But I would say, here, here's, the, here's the tension. Let's say that there's someone who says, well, my child is automatically going to go to heaven because they have Down syndrome or they're not able to understand the gospel. What's that going to result in in terms of their approach to interacting with that child? Well, I don't have to talk to them about God because they're just going to heaven anyway. So my response would be, I don't think that lessens our responsibility to teach about God. On the <coughs> sure. Yeah. Right. And on the other hand, I'm not going to say to someone whose infant dies, your child is in hell, because A, I don't know that. B, I don't believe that that is necessarily true based on all the passages that we just talked about. So what I would say to them is something along the lines of that given God's attitude towards those who are not morally speaking, but in terms of a lot of these other things, going back to that first idea of innocence, are innocent. I believe that, as Abraham said in Genesis, the judge of all the earth will do right. I can't put that child in heaven. At the same time, I can't put that child in hell. I can't take away a parent's responsibility to teach their children. And, and this, is, this is my one my primary objection to the concept of the age of the accountability is this. What is it? Is it three? Is it six? Is it 12? I mean, what often happens is people end up saying, well, I don't really have to teach my kids about God until they get to a certain age. Okay, now I really got to rush it because I want to make sure that they get saved now. I mean, this I'll, I'll just be honest with you. This is something I've been thinking about the last few weeks. Do I know where my kids stand before God? And am I doing all that I ought to do to make sure that they know Him? And that, I think, is the bottom line question. We, can, we could dispute for hours on the, the nature of these sorts of things. But sin being what it is, and the way to God being what it is, I think that we have to uphold our responsibility before God. So... Um, again, it might seem like a side trail, but I think that this illustrates some of what is our understanding of sin, what is the remedy for sin, what's our responsibility to address all these sorts of things. Yes, Tina. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think so. Yeah, Sandra.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that that's. I think that that's definitely a good verse to think about with connection with this. So. So, anyways, if we if I, if we bring it back around to. Um, Let's see here. There was something on the back that I wanted to highlight for you. Give me just a second here. Okay. Uh, look on the back there under the results of sin. Again, I'm not necessarily looking at this as include everything in a statement of faith. I'm just saying, since we're on the topic anyway, let's talk about some of these nuances of it. So, when it says... Uh, in the second paragraph under the results of sin, the second sentence, such acts of sin incur condemnation before God, though some actions bring greater punishment and greater responsibility brings greater accountability. What are your thoughts about that? Right. So the James 3.1 passage says, be very careful before you presume to teach other people because if you teach them wrongly, that's on you, you know? So I think that one is very clear. Um, just flip over to the John 19.11 passage just to uh, refresh my memory on it. That one says, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you had the, great, had the greater sin. In other words, um, the Jews were, or Pilate was responsible for crucifying Christ. That didn't let the Jews off the hook because they were the ones who instigated it and sort of drove the whole process. And specifically, Judas betrays Christ. So, I think that, I mean, it talks in the Bible also about the unpardonable sin. I mean, I think when the Pharisees looked at the miracles of Jesus and they saw what Jesus did, and they said, you have a demon. Clearly, that's a significant measure of unbelief that God did not take lightly, and I think condemns and, and punishes appropriately. So, um, I mean, I'm not arguing for a Dante's Inferno kind of idea, but I do think that there is a recognition. Sometimes people say, well, you know, God just sort of lets people off the hook and, and doesn't accomplish justice. But in light of what we looked at in Thessalonians, in light of a couple of these passages, I think we should certainly understand that that there is accountability for sin. Um, and this one sort of gets into the subject of what we are, uh, what we'll probably talk about next week with salvation. If we are sinners... If God has an anger against sin, then that means there must be a satisfaction of God's wrath. And I think we'll, we'll sort of hold that off and talk about it more next week. But it's not just that God can sort of sweep things under the rug. God, there has to be a payment for sin because we have violated God's law. 
One other question, and it's a question of whether we should put this under here or under this topic of sanctification, is what's the relationship between a Christian and sin? We don't have anything about this section right now, but if you look at the last paragraph under the results of sin, if a Christian sins, he doesn't lose his judicial holiness before God, basically his position of holiness before God, since salvation was God's work and since he's still a child of God. But sin mars the closeness of a person's relationship with God. We talked about this before. Can we talk about closeness with a God who's omnipresent? In terms of actual proximity, no. In terms of our awareness of our relationship with Him, yes. I can be sitting right next to somebody that's a part of my family, and if I've got some kind of thing against them, I'm not close to them even though I'm close to them. Do you understand? that? I think the same thing is true in our relationship with God. And so the result of that is discipline and the need for forgiveness. And uh, the way that we do that is by turning to God, confessing our sin, and he says he's faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin, from all unrighteousness. And so as a result, what's our response to sin supposed to be? We're supposed to resist temptation, which flows out of our former sinful nature. We're supposed to put off old desires, put on new desires and actions and thoughts and all those sorts of things. Again, I think that might fit under sanctification. It could fit here. Any thoughts on that? Okay. Right. It's a different kind of a thing, yeah. Right. Sure. Right. Okay. I kind of think that last topic there maybe fits better under sanctification. We could sort of address it there. And the one we talked about just before that about how do we deal with sin, that's really the topic of salvation. And so, um, yeah, Sandra. I guess the way that I would respond to that would be that we have an awareness of sin. We need the Holy Spirit's help to break certain habits of sin. Um, there, there's views of sanctification that say, well, you can sort of get to the point where you don't even the you don't ever do any sin on purpose. You just only do sin by accident, and so you're perfect in a sense, which I don't think that's biblical. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't... Obviously, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to turn away from any sin. But in terms of... I'm, is that answering your question at all? Okay. Right, but if the Holy Spirit lives within us as believers, then that should be an ongoing process once we trust Christ. Yeah, right. Okay. Sure. And sometimes people look at it as like a 50-50, but it's more like a 100-100 in the sense that we do everything God's commanded us to do. God's Spirit grants the power for us to do it. And uh, So it's not, it's not let go and let God, and it's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's actually do all that God's commanded you to do. God supplies the power, because apart from it, you won't change. So, All right, good discussion. Any other quick thoughts here as we close? Okay. All right. Well, we will uh, continue. I believe next week's topic is the subject of salvation. So we'll pick up there next week. And then probably after that, I think we'll do kind of either that week or the, uh, not next week, but either in two weeks or three weeks, we'll just sort of gather up the things we've looked at and do a kind of a review discussion again, like we did with the first three or four topics. So, all right. We'll head now over to the service. Thank you for your attention.